0: Hi, everyone. This is Donnie with Ox's Practical Defense. And today what we're going to do is we're going to get into our second episode on the current uh, Roe versus Wade uh, uh, ruling by the Supreme Court. What just happened, if you've been living under a rock, is that last Friday, the Supreme Court of the United States overturned Roe versus Wade after it was passed in 1973. And so it's basically upsets a 49-year precedent and turns the dial back to where we were prior to that ruling as far as abortion and right to life things are concerned. So what I'm interested in doing this week is now that we had kind of an episode last week on the day of I published an episode that went into the details of what that actually means for the states themselves like as of last Friday what does the landscape look like which basically to summarize just in case you missed that episode it doesn't it means that nothing effectively changes in the majority of states um so far as the states that were that had that are very pro-abortion like california new york and uh, illinois and other places like that those places are not really affected by what just happened the places that are affected are states that are much more conservative that have uh that have basically trigger laws they're in Process Right now, where uh, if Roe versus Wade was overruled like it was last week, they trigger new anti-abortion type laws. And so in laws uh, in states like my, my state, which is Missouri, uh, we basically were the first states that went and took aggressive actions. So now we have what's called a heartbeat bill, which shortens down the abortion window to six weeks. So if there's uh, or less, it's as soon as there is a heartbeat or brain activity uh, detected, abortion is off the table. And so uh, that's what happened this last week. And I have more details in that previous episode, so you can go and listen to that if you would like. Now, as far as what we're going to talk about today is I'm going to go way farther back and talk more about the history of of what brought us to this point, uh, what led to the Roe versus Wade original decision in 1973, and uh, how we how all of this has transpired in, in the last, mm, let's see, 150 years in particular is where we're going to spend most of our time. So, before we get too far, we have to lay out a couple of basic things as far as the surrounding time really the thing we have to go back to is way is back in about 1883 and we have to go back and talk more about uh what was called the eugenics movement and what and what we're going to do is as we dig into the eugenics movements that will take us and feed into Planned Parenthood and talking about some uh, Margaret Sanger uh stuff where you give you some background on her and then we'll talk about the Roe versus Wade decision, as well as the Bell versus Buck decision, which, were, uh, which was another related case that happened in the 1920s. And we'll dig deeper into all those things and show you what the outcomes were. So thank you guys so much for listening. We'll get right into it. To get started, what we have to do is we have to go all the way back 2,000 years, actually a little bit more than that. And we're going to go back to, uh, the, uh, to talk about a guy whose name was Tertullian of Carthage. And hopefully I'm saying his name right. I'm not an ancient scholar, so I don't know if I'm saying that properly. But uh, we're going to go with it. He lived from 160 to 220 A.D., and uh, he had some records that, show, uh, that basically reflect some early things that we're going to talk about in a moment so that apply all the way into the current period. And so uh, one of the things that he talks about, he wrote about uh, different abortion practices, and he was actually a, a church father, so he wrote Christian literature. But and the things that he talks about in one particular area that I was looking at is that he was talking about uh, the practices of abortion in Carthage, um, and in particular, back then, what, the way it, uh, it, it manifests itself was through uh, child sacrifice, generally speaking. And uh, in one of his inscriptions, he, uh, he talks about a man named either Tuscus or Tusus, who says that he gave his, quote, his mute son, Bodastart, a defective child, in exchange for a healthy one. So what he's talking about in this passage is he's talking about all the way back to that period of time, we had connections to uh, people who uh, sacrificed kids who were born with special needs, or other types of situations where there, uh, there was an unwanted child or something of that nature. And back then, they just used them as sacrifices rather than the more atheist development that we had into the 18th and 19th centuries. So what we're going to do is we can go all the way back to there um, and read about that stuff from him. There's also other biblical mo- references about early practices including ones that are in the Bible. Um, we have some that are referenced in Deuteronomy 12.31 uh, that condemns the Canaanites for their practices. It even condemns the Israelites in Psalm 106.38, uh, Jeremiah 19.5, and Second Kings 17.17. 17. They talk about different types of beliefs that they had formed around that time and the different ways that they, uh, that they went through these different rituals to try and try and cleanse their population. Now, as we fast forward all the way up until uh, the 19th century, we end up in, a, uh, in the year 1883. And this is where we have the, we encountered the modern uprise of the Planned Parenthood and the abortion movement. And in 1883, what happened was there was a guy named Francis Galton, and he published a book called Good Genes. Um, Basically, the book in itself was just a book about human selective breeding, similar to what we do with livestock. So we find uh, livestock that have good characteristics, and we breed them with other livestock that have good characteristics. And the idea is that we continually create better, stronger, uh, fatter animals, whatever the situation might be. And basically what his argument was, was he was talking about doing that in humanity's purpose, uh, taking and trying to shape the best Form of humanity by basically trimming off those uh, the chaff and focusing on the the best part of humanity. And so, when we're talking about this type of topic, it's what led into what's called eugenics and the eugenics movement. Eugenics was actually viewed as a science, and in fact, they it was a very popular uh, social social. Science, not in the form of like studying uh, groups, but it was a, it was socially acceptable as a science, and they actually had a, a major event for it at the American Museum of Natural History in New York in nineteen twenty one um, They actually have uh, a basic idea that the way that they should perform eugenics is through uh, both positive and negative incentives. Uh, to procreate. So positive incentives would look like uh, they actually had contests that they would host, which were um, baby contests, like parents bring their kid and then they do like beauty pageants for kids, basically. Um, and then they had uh negative incentives, which we'll talk to we'll talk about a little bit more in just a minute. On the actual posters that they were using to to promote that uh that events at the American Museum of Natural History in New York they actually had a picture of a tree and it has it's a big tree i'll try to describe it for you it's a big tree that has many roots below it and it has a uh, over the top of the tree it has a banner that says eugenics and uh in the white space it says eugenics is the self-direction of human evolution so it basically when they're talking about the science of eugenics they're talking about how we control human evolution in uh in the future to continuously make humanity better now, what they believed at this as part of this science is they believed that not only physical characteristics were attributed to, uh, to eugenics, but that other characteristics such as your politeness, your selfishness, your disobedience, um, what they would call shiftlessness uh, kind of a less popular word today, but uh, it just means that they're, they're shifty is, I guess what we would say today. Um, it, it would connect all of those things. And say that they were part of your genetic makeup rather than your character. So, if you uh, had, if you were believed to be a uh, a reject from society, or somebody who was untrustworthy, or somebody who was feeble minded, or somebody who was prone to criminal activity, then it's not actually because of you uh, so much as uh, it's not part of your. It's not because of your decisions and and your upbringing it's more about your genetics in specific it's it's that you could not have turned out any other way other than what you did and so what they're doing is they're taking this idea of eugenics being the self-direction of human evolution and they connect it and they connect it to all the other sciences so on the roots of that tree that are in the picture they connect it to many different types so they have uh genetics branching to biology and, uh, psychology and mental testing and, uh, and history and geology and, and statistics and bio and biography and genealogy and Scientology. And, I'm sorry, not Scientology, sociology. Misread that. <laughs> uh, Scientology wasn't exactly a thing quite yet. Um, but they have uh, connected to all these different, uh, G's basically. And, uh, they say that, at the root of all of this is your genetic makeup. Your genetic makeup is what creates you and everything about you. There is no other understanding of this. Now, obviously, this is way before we had any sort of genetic understanding uh, with DNA testing or anything else like that. And so it was basically based off of observation, um, and we'll read more about how that went. So uh, a guy named Charles Elliott wrote uh, in the New York Times in 1950, Quote, society must concern itself not chiefly with the isolation, temporary or permanent, of the individual murderer, thief, or forger, but with the extermination or repair of the genetic, educational, or industrial defects which cause the production of criminals. So you can hear right there, it's something that they can't, they can't for the most part, change. It's, it's born into them. And so they're, uh, they are they're people who are, are not helpful to society. A guy named Henry Laughlin, who went, became famous later on for his writings uh, on eugenics and other topics, um, in particular, he uh, was quoted as saying that orphans, ne'er-do-wells, tramps, the homeless, and paupers uh, uh, should not be allowed to procreate. And so those were his, his terms. Basically, if you're, if you're somebody who's not, uh, not in the mainstream society, then you shouldn't be allowed to, procre- to procreate. In fact, this type of law, um, the the these types of beliefs were actually put into law in a number of different states at different times. At uh, in fact, over the last that period of time, about 40, 50 years, there were twenty three states that passed what were called asexualization laws, and uh, basically what that meant is that if you were viewed to be one of those people that Henry Laf- Laughlin. Um, termed an orphan, a ne'er-do-well, a tramp, a homeless, or a pauper, or a uh, or as pri- previously mentioned a uh, a criminal uh, who is unredeemable, then you could actually be sterilized to prevent you from continuing your genetic line because what they believed is that the your subsequent progeny could not change the line that you had already created. Um, you inherited it, and you will pass it on, and so there was no way that you would be able to uh, fix the cycle. And so instead, they're just going to sterilize you so you can't continue the cycle, which would cause the uh, society as a whole in their mind uh, to end up holding the holding the uh basically ending up with the deficit and being responsible for your mistakes and your progeny's mistakes under those laws in California alone, over twenty thousand people were sterilized against their own world and so this is all happening in that you know, 40, 50-year period uh, from the 1880s all the way to the 1930s. And uh, in during the, right in that period of time, in 1927, we had a Supreme Court case called Buck versus Bell. And I'm citing this case because it's a very famous case, but also it's a really great example of what was going on and what the thought process was in the background. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a little bit about the case, and then I'm going to read... Uh, the majority opinion that was written by uh, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. And I'm going to read his exact quotes from what he actually wrote and what the Supreme Court wrote about that. Uh, so here's the background. So in this case, the the uh, we have Carrie Buck, who was 18 at the time, um, who was pregnant. And... At, and based on the source material I was reading, we're unsure of whether or not it was rape. Um, there was one that said that she was raped by a, uh, by a family member, um, but we're not sure as far as— uh, I'm, I couldn't find other corroborating sources that said that, and so I only had one case uh, that actually said that. Um, so I wanted to leave it as kind of unsure. But she was pregnant either way. Um, she was deemed mentally incompetent and was put in a, a colony uh, under the supervision of a guy named Dr. Albert Pretty. Um, her mother was also unst- was also viewed as unstable and was also uh, put into the same uh, the same place, and that place was actually uh, the Virginia State Colony of Epileptics and the Feeble Minded, and so they were both taken uh, and placed into this colony, so to speak, forcibly, and it was because they were believed to be feeble minded for one uh, reason or another. The actual ruling what they what was trying to, what they were trying to do was albert Pretty, Dr. Albert Pretty, was trying to have uh have Carrie Buck forcibly sterilized and to have her fallopian tubes cut and so that she couldn't couldn't procreate to continue the line and so during that lawsuit, it escalated through various appeals until it got all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court had to make a the final decision as to whether or not she could be uh forcibly uh sterilized by Dr. Albert Pretty and the uh and and through the 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 colony itself the uh organization that was established there so here's some stuff from the from the background um I'm going to read some of these quotes and uh I'll add some comments in between so it says Uh, Carrie Buck is a feeble-minded white woman who has committed to the state colony above mentioned in due form, which, as I mentioned a moment ago, was the Virginia State Colony of Epileptics and Feeble-Minded. She is the daughter of a feeble-minded mother in the same institution and the mother of an illegitimate feeble-minded child. She was 18 years old at the time of the trial and of her case in the circuit court in the latter part of 1924. So here's the actual quote from the case and from the majority opinion. Quote, she is the probable potential parent of socially inadequate offspring, likewise afflicted, that she may be sexually sterilized without detriment to her general health and that her welfare and that of society will be promoted by her sterilization, and thereupon makes the order. In view of the general declarations of the legislature and the specific findings of the court... Obviously, we cannot say as a matter of law that the grounds do not exist, and if they exist, they justify the result. We have seen more than once that the public welfare may call upon the best citizens for their lives. It would be strange if it could not call upon those who already sapped the strength of the state for these lesser sacrifices, often not felt to be such by those concerned in order to prevent our being swamped with incompetence. It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes, citing Jacob- Jacobson versus Massachusetts, uh, which was another Supreme Court case. Um, He completes the statement by saying three generations of imbeciles are enough. So you can kind of let that sink in a little bit. If you summarize it, basically he says uh, that the majority opinion of the Supreme Court, this is eight to one, there was one dissenting justice. uh, His name was Pierce Butler. He was a conservative justice, and he was the only dissenting justice on the Supreme Court to this decision. And in that decision, what they basically say is, well, doesn't really matter whether she wants it to happen or not. Under this statute, uh, Jason versus Massachusetts, this ruling that allowed for forcible va- vaccination, we're going to say that she can be forcibly uh, sterilized so that she cannot procreate because we do not want to have her to have any more children other than what she already has because they'll become a weight on society along with the mother, the daughter, and the granddaughter. And so we don't want to create any. We don't want any more coming from this line because there is no way they could change this, and they are always going to fall into the same category, and that they're always going to be feeble-minded and always going to be dependent on the state and always going to sap the resources of everyone else. So it's our it's our ability and our right to stop them from being able to procreate. So that's pretty heavy. That's a, that's a uh, that was the Buck versus Bell lawsuit, and like I said, it was uh it was actually. Uh, the trials first started in 1924 and was eventually settled in 1927 uh, with this ruling. Buck versus Bell. This is kind of a side note. Was also later used as a foundation of the Nazi eugenics law. Now, this also set a uh, set of precedent for euthanasia in that uh, it basically talked about it was basically setting up a a, a foreground uh, study where you could say, well, we can prevent this person from procreating, but that also takes into it also takes into consideration people who are a sap on society being that they're not helpful to society, so uh, you could also make an argument for euthanasia that way, being that they're not helpful to anybody, so why have them around so uh that's that's the first part of this so that that kind of gives you the background for what you, the eugenics the science of eugenics was. I think that there was some greater minded Aspirations to the movements, whether they're believing uh, that it's well. First of all, it's devoid of anything uh, Christian or faith based. It's completely based on a evolutionary perspective. And so it takes that evolutionary perspective to its degree and says that, well, we can help the evolution movement uh, and we can help the progression of evolution move along faster and we can improve it because if that's the the case and that everything is designed by, is created through natural selection, then the survival of the fist is what matters. And so what we'll do is we'll just kind of help the survival of the fist to continue at a faster pace. So, that takes us through the eugenics movement and the foundation of it. Now what we have to do is we have to go back and connect that to Planned Parenthood. Where did Planned Parenthood enter the picture, uh, and, and how, did this, how, how did this get started? So Planned Parenthood entered the picture when Margaret Sanger was born in 1879. Uh, she was basically, she, her mother uh, had uh, 11 children, and she actually died early on in her life so she didn't really have a relationship with her mother very much because tuberculosis, the cause for how she passed away. But either way, um, Margaret grew up without a mother, uh, and we don't really have much about the rest of her growing up period of time. Where her timeline kind of picks up is when she got married. um, She got married and joined uh, what was called the Women's Committee of the New York Socialist Party. And uh, so when she joined this committee, uh, she became part of an active member of the Socialist Party and uh, started going to nursing school. So when she was pursuing nursing school, she actually was doing this socialist stuff, and uh, part of the socialist mindset is that uh, we should be splitting Uh, It it basically is an argument towards, and we can actually do, we'll probably do another episode on socialism and what that means, but basically it's about uh, collective ownership of goods. And uh, this is also talking about uh a what leads into communism but uh socialism is collecting is a common ownership of goods and so everything is distributed among the group now the problem with socialism and one of the things that plays into this is that they believe there are a limited amount of resources and so since there are a limited amount of resources if you have people who are sapping on the system who are not doing their part who are not uh, contributing to the system then they are by definition taking away from the other more productive people in society And so that creates this tension where you have two different sides. You have the the people who are productive and in power and forward-thinking and and useful. And you have the people who are the the slogs, the criminals, the people who uh, end up in the the gutter and who are uh, less fortunate in life. And so you end up with this two-sided thing. Even though socialism is designed as a kind of high-minded way to say that we should just bring everybody up with us, it never actually ends up that way. So she's a nurse, but she never actually finished nursing school, and she began. But she actually, even at that time, uh, requirements you know for for uh, were much lower than they used to, than what they are now. And so even though she never finished nursing school, she actually began working as a nurse in New York City uh, in a poor immigrant section of the uh, of of the city. Um, and during that time, she began a column uh, that was called What Every Girl Should Know. And uh, the, the, basically with that, uh, that, the column, it led to what later turned into uh, her other uh, column, which was called the Birth Control Review. Now, I have an image here of the Birth Control Review, which was a... Uh, this is actually just the front of her article. The article was below it. And it's an image of a, a, a woman with a a, a ball and chain... Uh, and the, on the, the ball is written, Unwanted Babies, and then she's changed to the ball. And this is from uh, November of 1923, and it was being sold for 20 cents a copy, <laughs> um, or $2 a year was the, uh, the price. Uh, so that was an actual publication of the American Birth Control League, uh, and that was written and edited by uh, Margaret Sanger. After uh, publishing this material, uh, this material was viewed as very controversial at the time, even though in the light of the eugenics movement, it seems to make sense, and that's where we see stuff kind of connect up later. Uh, there was a, uh, an act that was passed called the Comstock Act, and due to that act, she actually fled to England in 1914 and then, uh, and then uh, returned back to the United States in 1915. Uh, from 1917 to 1929, she was. That was during the time that she wrote the Birth Control Review, and in 1921 she founded the American Birth Control League, for uh, which later on turned into what we now know today as Planned Parenthood. Uh, the here's some of the original. Uh, this is a letter that was actually written. Um, by Margaret Sanger to Dr. C.J. Gamble on December 10th of 1939. So this is after the fact, um, but while all this stuff is still uh, leading up into the Roe versus Wade decision, here's her quote. Uh, quote, We do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population, and the minister is the man who can straight, straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of the more rebellious members. So what she's talking about here is that she's, they're using this minister, and they're saying that basically we, want, we don't want to say out loud that we want to exterminate the Negro population, uh, in her words. But, uh, and so we're going to use this guy as kind of our front uh, to, put, uh, to put forward our, 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 our methods of eugenics through our Planned Parenthood uh, front. And so the idea is basically continuing that idea that, in her mind, they're eliminating lesser humans and perpetuating the forward motion of the species. So uh, here's the thing that I wanted to make a point of, and that's that eugenics, like I said a moment ago, is a tool of socialism. So uh, socialism believes that there are limited resources and that they should be distributed by the governments. So if we reduce the population, what that means is that there's more for the superior population— and that's why uh, people like Sanger were interested in targeting specific communities, uh, it was because they wanted to reduce what they believed were dead weight, and, uh, even, and, and they wanted to use their tools of propaganda to spread that mindset. So that's kind of like that lays the groundwork from where Planned Parenthood came from. That tells you where uh, eugenics came from. And now we get to the Roe versus Wade decision. So um, everybody's heard this by now uh, of what of the Roe versus Wade decision. And everybody kind of understands a little bit about it, But nobody really understands uh, what the, the the lawsuit itself was actually about. And I talked a little bit about this last week. But I'm going to go back over it again just to make sure that everything is kind of is uh, straight on this. So... Um, with the, the Roe versus Wade case summary, basically, and this is according to fine law, uh, the, the Supreme Court was deciding whether or not Jane Roe, who was an unmarried pregnant woman, uh, could abort her child, though uh, the Texas state law at the time said that she could not. And so they sued the state of Texas uh, so that she could follow through with this abortion. There were no numerous arguments that were made, but the top ones that were uh, that were based on from or that were out of Texas. So uh, Texas, the state of Texas, in their defense, argued this. They said that the states have an interest in safeguarding health, maintaining medical standards, and protecting prenatal life. And as such, a fetus is a person who is protected by the Fourteenth Amendment. And the protecting prenatal life from the time of conception is a compelling state interest. So they're saying that uh, the state has an interest in protecting children even before they're born, and that a fetus is covered by the Fourteenth Amendment, and that uh, the state uh, has a right to uh, to maintain their own laws within their within their area. On the other side of things, the the Jane Roe argument. Uh, was that the Texas law invaded an individual 's right to liberty under the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, and the Texas law infringed on the rights of the to marital familial, and sexual privacy guaranteed by the Bill of rights, and finally that the right to an abortion is absolute. She said that a person is entitled to end a pregnancy at any time for any reason in any way they choose. And so that was the argument that was put forth. And at that time in 1973, the Supreme Court ruled in Jane Roe's favor, and we just saw that overturned last Friday. So during all of that, we had that massive case. It became a really, uh, just a, it it changed everything that happened for the next 50 years, and uh, we're just seeing the eclipse of that now, but it's still going to have impact in the future as these states that are now not shackled by this federal law are able to make their own decisions. We're still going to see arguments going about this back and forth uh, across the United States. Now, Jane Roe was actually an alias because they wanted to protect her, her identity at the time. Uh, the woman who actually was Jane Roe, her name was Norma McCorvey, and, uh, and she was the, the actual woman behind Jane Roe. And she actually, later on in life, in 1995, became a prominent voice for the pro-life movement. Um, she actually regretted the original lawsuit and what they actually did. And here's an actual quote from her. She says, I deeply regret the damage to my original case caused to women. I want the Supreme Court to examine the evidence and have a spirit of justice for women and children. I did not go to the Supreme Court on behalf of a class of women. I wasn't put pursuing any legal remedy to my unwanted pregnancy. I did not go to the federal courts for relief. I went to Sarah Weddington to asking her if she knew how I could obtain an abortion. She and Linda Coffey said they didn't know where to get one. They lied to me just like I lied to them. Sarah already had an abortion. She knew where to get one. Sarah and Linda were just looking for somebody, anybody to further their own agenda I was willing. I was their willing dupe. For this, I'll forever be ashamed. And uh, so, what she's saying there is that she went to these two people, these two women, uh, when she wanted an abortion, uh, and they did not tell her of where to get one, an illegal one, uh, and with the intention of making her the primary person in this lawsuit that they were already formulating. And so, she was duped by them into this lawsuit, and it, 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 it basically cycled into this whole other thing that dealt, that has been a problem for the last, or been a situation for the last 50 years. Um, so we have, we have this last quote from her. She said, uh, I'm Norma McCorvey, uh, the former Jane Roe of the Roe versus Wade decision that brought legal child killing to America. I was persuaded by feminist attorneys to lie to say that I was raped and needed an abortion. It was all a lie. That's a direct quote from Norman McCorvey. So we kind of wrap this up here, We're getting to where we are today again. So we have the history being uh, going all the way back 2,000 years to child sacrifice to uh, what happened in the 1800s where we talk about eugenics and eugenics theory and how it sprang out of evolutionist theories. And then we dig into how Planned Parenthood came to the scene and uh, what their original uh what their original idea was behind what they were trying to do and then we looked at what the actual outcome was what that was uh with the Roe versus Wade decision and uh what happened over the next 50 years where we had millions and millions of of abortions so now what we have today uh i talked about this last week uh on the actual day of uh, but basically, we have uh, ten, oh, over 10 states. Uh, I believe it's 13, but one of those is my state, uh, Missouri. But that also includes Texas, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, Ohio, Tennessee, Wyoming. Um, all of those states uh, have what are called a, a heartbeat bills. And so after now that Roe versus Wade has been uh, overturned, those ones will start to go into effect, where they limit the amount of time that you have to have an abortion Uh, uh, from significantly. So basically they say if there's a detectable heartbeat or brain activity, uh, then there is no abortion after that point. And so you have these states that are significantly limiting the accessibility of this. And then you also have states that are not going to do anything, are actually going to firm up their abortion stuff, such as California. So California uh, has just moved forward and put some new stuff in their state house uh, with new legislation that makes abortion even more uh, pervasive in the state. Uh, because what they're doing is they're protecting that industry rather than these other states, which are cutting it out. And so we have uh, this kind of statism... And these different, and well, actually, I guess it's called federalism because the federalism is the idea that you have uh, a federal government, but then you, have sm- then you have smaller areas within those that each get their own central, their own governments, and they get to make their own decisions. And so uh, what we're doing with this is we have all these states, they're going to become their own areas and make their own laws on this. And so you'll have to go to different states to take advantage of whatever their laws are. So that's where we are right now. Uh, Thank you guys so much for listening. This has kind of been a a heavy topic to consider, uh, but it's really important that we understand what the outcome is of uh, what has happened in the past and what happened in the past in the first place. And so I appreciate you guys listening. Hopefully this was interesting for you. Um, before we get wrapped up, I'll tell you a little bit about this. So um, the company that I work with is Ox's Practical Defense. Uh, what we do is we help clients to better understand how to be uh, actively defensive in the modern world. So we go and we look at different situations, whether it's a church security system, we'll go and we'll work with church security teams to help them improve their uh, their abilities, uh, make sure that their insurance is properly set up, that they are uh, properly trained, and that they have the proper credentials. and We'll help them to make sure that everything is done specifically for them. We do customized defense. We also work with private clients. Depending on the person, we'll organize what, whatever training they need that's necessary. Um, we're also certified to uh, train police departments. And so we work with actual police officers uh, and do other types of uh, defensive stuff in that area. And we're also going to be coming up with some courses in about two to three months. Uh, working on some courses right now that will be going live that will be available for uh, some really interesting stuff that's, that's designed to, to be more around worldview type stuff and targeting uh, college students. And we'll be working with that, uh, that scene. So thank you guys so much for listening. I Really appreciate it. I have some really exciting uh, episodes coming up with some interviews. We've never done an interview before. And so I'm super excited to have some new interviews on this podcast. And so I hope you'll uh, stay tuned and listen then. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day.